It's good to see all you guys in, in this space. Last week, we weren't in here. We were doing something a little uh, out, of the, out of the box, uh, literally, and uh, serving in our community. I just want to, again, thank all of you that participated in that, more than 200 of you. And we were, we were all over the place building wheelchair ramps and, and putting together care packages for shut-ins and teachers and uh, spreading mulch and gravel. And some peop- somebody was digging a ditch at some point. Matthew was digging a ditch, I think. I don't know what that was about, but just awesome uh, example of the love of Christ in our community. And I just want to thank you for that. I ran into the uh, Cicero Parks director at the football game, and he grabbed me by the arm and he said, thank you again so much for the people that came and helped at the park. I don't know who you were that helped at the park, but he was really impressed, not just with the work that got done. He was very excited about the work that got done, but he was just impressed with people's attitudes. Just the, he's like, these people know they're not getting paid, right? Like, but they're so happy and they're excited to serve. And, and I've never seen people excited to spread mulch before. Like I have to, I have to really, you know, nudge people to do that, but they were excited to spread mulch. And uh, it was just, it was in the name of Jesus. Like we did it to show love to our community. And I think uh, you guys did an amazing job. And I'm so grateful uh, that I get to be a part of a church that cares about our community in that way and is willing to give up our time here uh, in order to do that. So thank you for being that kind of church family. Um, but I am also glad to be back in here and to get to see your faces and hear your voices sing and, uh, and then get to talk at you for, you know, half an hour or so. We'll see how that goes. Uh, we're going to talk about joy for three weeks. I'm uh, in a personal journey of becoming uh, more joyful. I just recognize that my level of joy and my ability to sustain joy, uh, I've got a lot of room for improvement there. I'm not a person that people say to me like, hey man, you smile too much. Could you, could you just like knock it off? Like stop smiling so much. Uh, people don't say that to me. I just have one of those faces. I, just, I want you to know I'm usually much happier on the inside than I look on the outside. I'm, I, just, I have one of those faces, but I do want to raise my joy quotient. I want a higher levels of joy and, and more sustained joy. And I'm, I'm just kind of inviting you to go on this journey with me of how to increase my joy. Do you want more joy in your life? All right, thanks, Mom, and uh, the other two of you. We'll, we'll uh, do this together. Um, I believe that, that all of us, uh, even those who weren't aware that there's audience participation sometimes, want more joy in our lives. Because joy can be hard to come by in this world. We, we see the stuff that's going on around us. We see this, the, the, the problems in the world, right? If I were to ask you to make a list of the things that are wrong with the world, oh, boy. I mean, we would have your attention for a while, right? That would be a long list. And some of it would be heartbreaking uh, stuff that we would be talking about. And we, we're aware of all of that. And sometimes it just feels overwhelming. And we feel like these moments of joy that we get to experience, uh, moments of joy are so short and hard to hold on to, right? But how can we, how can we live with sustained levels, uh, high levels of joy for longer periods of time? I'm really interested in that because I believe I was created to live with joy. I believe that's what God, one of the things God made me for, peace, joy, and purpose. I say that all the time. If you've been around, you've heard me say those three things together. I I think we were created for peace, joy, and purpose, and joy just sometimes seems hard to hold on to. Um, We struggle with the relationship between joy and happiness, and maybe maybe you uh, don't know the difference or you've thought maybe... You know, happiness is like this short, you know, uh, unfulfilling thing. I, I, I don't know. Happiness is good. I like to be happy. Who doesn't like to be happy, right? I think joy is a little different. Joy is, uh, it can be a state of being. 
It, it can be this state of just knowing that I'm loved by a good God. I'm loved by a good God. He's good and he loves me and he knows what he's doing uh, in uh, my life and in the world. Um, but it's also an experience. When we, when we experience God being good and loving people in the world around us, that brings us joy. When you, if you're a parent and you see your kids thrive at anything, you have these moments where you look at your kids and go, oh, they're just, they're thriving, they're doing great. That brings you so much joy, doesn't it? Or you see someone else go through life change. You see somebody grow in a way. We're going to celebrate a couple baptisms at the end of the service. Man, that brings me so much joy to see God at work in in people's lives, uh, changing them and shaping them uh, to be like Jesus. But it it seems momentary. It seems uh, just periodic and hard to hold on to. But when when we read scripture, we come across a couple different people, one in particular, who seemed to have a pretty high level of joy that he was able to sustain through a lot of really awful circumstances. Uh, his name is Paul. He was an apostle, and he had some really uh, ups and downs. He had some really up ups and some really down downs in his life uh, when it came to his circumstances. But through it all, he maintains this this level of joy. And you kind of look, you kind of if you read the book of Acts and you see the stuff that happened to Paul, and then you read his letters and you see how he writes about joy, you're like, how can this be the same person? How can the same person experience like? imprisonment and torture and people trying to kill him and people who hated him and they kept kicking him out of all these towns. He would go into a town. He'd be like, hey guys, I've got good news. And they would kick him out. You're like, that would get old, wouldn't it? Really quick. You know, that that would really hurt your joy, wouldn't it? But when he writes these letters, he writes with so much joy, particularly the book of Philippians, this letter to this church in Philippi, over 15 times he references joy that he's experiencing or he wants people to experience joy. Where does that come from? And how does he maintain it? Well, I I, want to give you a mental picture of how I think joy works in our lives. It's something I'm learning, hopefully, that I can pass on to you. Um, And I think think joy is like water. I think joy flows. It wants to flow through, right? Water wants to move. It wants to flow. And I think that's how joy works in our lives. So um, I, I... borrowed this uh, analogy from somebody that was using it to talk about something else, and I'm just co-opting it uh, to talk about joy, but it involves a a map, a Bible map. Uh, Did any of you growing up have Bibles that had maps in the back? Like, guys, that was my favorite part of the Bible. (laughs) I gotta be really honest. Like, uh, my dad was a preacher, and uh, man, I don't know how my boys do it. Actually, I, I do. They, they're actually not in here. They're not, they're not listening. Um, but my dad would, would preach, and I would be studying the maps in the back of the Bible. Cause, uh, and maybe that's why I'm like a little bit of a geography nerd now, but I just love that, looking at uh, the, the, how the 12 tribes were all broken up or the missionary journeys of Paul. And, and so this really resonates with me. And so if you've never seen a Bible map before, you're just going to have to use your imagination and get on board. So here, this is a map of Israel. And uh, what you're looking at, the, the top arrow is pointing to the Sea of Galilee. This is the sea where Jesus walked on water and Peter walked on water. It's where Peter and Andrew and James and John, they went fishing all the time, the Sea of Galilee, okay? And the arrow at the bottom is pointing to a body of water called the Dead Sea. And, and the Dead Sea is not mentioned a whole lot in Scripture, uh, but it's, it's there right uh, just to the east of Jerusalem, uh, close to Jericho. And maybe you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, that's uh, some scrolls of many of of the Bible that were found just uh, back in the 1940s, uh, discovered there near the Dead Sea. So what, what's going on with these two bodies of water? Well, the, the, the Jordan River starts north of the Sea of Galilee and flows into the Sea of Galilee. 
And then it flows out southward from the Sea of Galilee to the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea is like the lowest spot on the planet, like outside of an ocean. It's, it's just this really deep, low place. And so all, all this water flows into the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea has no outflows. No water goes out of it. Only, water only comes into it. Whereas the Sea of Galilee has inflow and outflow. It has the Jordan River on both ends, north and south, and it has water flowing in, and it has water flowing out. And the two main differences you would notice if you visited the Sea of Galilee and you visited the Dead Sea is the Sea of Galilee is full of life. There are fish and there are birds by the just gazillions at the Sea of Galilee. If you look up pictures of the Sea of Galilee, you're probably gonna see birds. There's just birds everywhere. There's fish in it. It's just full of life. And if you were to visit the Dead Sea, you would find no life. That's why they call it the Dead Sea, right? They, it, these people knew what they were doing when they named this place. There's no life there. It has like the highest salt content of any body of water. And so nothing can really, there's no fish there. There's, there's like some, they think there's some bacteria and like some algae on the bottom. Uh, there's some weird stuff going on with the Dead Sea, by the way. You should look into it. It's fascinating. But there's no life. There's no fish there. There's no birds there. There's nothing, to, there, you know, there's nothing to eat. You can go and you can like swim in it. I wouldn't do it if you got like a flesh wound or anything. I'd, but you can, you can jump in if you want to. But there's no life there. And I think the reason why there's no life is because there's no outflow, right? The, the water just comes in and it doesn't, it doesn't go out. It doesn't have anywhere to go, whereas the Sea of Galilee has inflow and outflow. So that's, that's us, okay? We have this choice. We can be the Sea of Galilee. We can have inflow of joy and outflow of joy, or we, we can just have only inflow. And so we can either be full of life or we can be devoid of life. I, th- I think that's the, the choice here. So uh, when we think about our own joy or happiness, we almost always think of inflow, right? What, what good thing can happen to me to increase my joy? What, what good thing can God do? God, let me, it's, God, it's, I haven't prayed in a long time. It's time to pray. So let me think about what I want to pray about. What good thing can you do for me that would increase my joy? Maybe, maybe if you would make some people stop being mad at me. Uh, maybe if you would um, get, give me a raise, uh, give me a better job. Maybe if I just had more free time, more vacation time, nicer vacations. We would think of inflow. How can, how can something come into my life that would increase my joy? We don't often think of outflow. So through this series, we're going to talk about the outflow. I think there are things that, that need to flow out of us that will actually increase our joy. And they're sort of counterintuitive. Uh, there's, there's three uh, habits or actions, I think, that we can invest in that will increase our joy quotient. And uh, I'm going to share these with you. Uh, they are, um, I'm using the analogy CSI. So it's like we're doing an investigation of joy, CSI. Um, they are compassion, sacrifice, and integrity. Now, when you reread those words, you don't, that doesn't scream more joy and happiness, does it? Like, oh, sacrifice. Yeah, oh, sacrifice is my favorite. Sacrifice makes me really smile. I love sacrifice. No, we don't think of it that way. It's, it's counterintuitive. We think about what comes in brings us joy. But I'm convinced when we look at the life of Paul, we're going to see that what comes out of him brings him joy. So um, we also are going to talk about some Dead Sea habits that can kill joy. We're going to call them Dead Sea habits because the Dead Sea is the lowest point. What does water like to do? Water likes to find the lowest point and just hang out there and become stagnant and lifeless. That's what it likes to do, right? And so um, 
the Dead Sea is where all the water comes in. These Dead Sea habits are things that we do that make us the low point, make us the center, where every, we want everything flowing in to us. And so the three Dead Sea habits that we'll talk about through this series are comparison, complaining, and control. Uh, so uh, I'm not gonna tell you which week is which because some of you are like, I'm not showing up for the complaining one. Like that's something I just enjoy. It actually brings me joy to complain. So don't tell me not to complain. Uh, so I'm not gonna tell you which week that is. Uh, so you'll uh, just be surprised. Um, so uh, what I want to do is talk a little bit about uh, compassion today and how uh, I believe compassion is an outflow. It's a joy outlet that it's something that comes out of us that actually increases our joy. Um, and we're going to see the life of, of the Apostle Paul. Paul was known as a, a pretty intense guy. I mean, like what kind of person do you have to be to go into a city and, and Preach the good news about Jesus, knowing that there are people there that are going to hate you for it. Not just hate you like talk bad about you to their friends, but hate you like throw big rocks at your head and try to kill you, hate you. What kind of person do you have to be to do that anyway? He was very intense. He was passionate. He was determined. Uh, in some ways, he was sort of stubborn and, and, and an intense guy. But he was also filled with compassion. When you read his letters, you're going to see compassion for the people that he ministered to just flow out of him. And it's not something we think about in relation to Paul, but, but once you start looking for it, it's there. Where does Paul get his uh, sense of compassion? Is he just... Are people just born compassionate or not compassionate? Uh, wouldn't it be nice if we could just kind of write it off and go, well, I'm just, I'm just not a compassionate person. It's kind of like I'm not tall, you know, uh, I'm not very good at basketball and I'm not compassionate, right? Um, no, I don't think we can just write it off like that. Uh, Paul tells the church in, in Colossae, like, you should be clothed with compassion as, as followers of Jesus. I think we all are called to be compassionate. So where does it come from? Well, for Paul, I think he learned it from Jesus. When you read about Jesus and how Jesus, when he saw people and the way he responded to them, he was full of compassion. Just one example, Matthew chapter nine, verse 36. It says, when Jesus, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So what, what is compassion? Is it just a feeling? Is it just, do you feel bad for people's like pity? Or is it more than that? I, I think it's more than that. I think compassion is a response to the suffering of another person that involves feeling and doing. I think it absolutely is feeling something. It's, it's feeling, when you, when you see someone else suffering and you have this emotional response, I think that's the first part of compassion. It's like 49%. You can't really call it compassion yet. It's when you do something because of another person's suffering, that it becomes compassionate. It's feeling and doing. And you see this in the life of Jesus. He had compassion on people, so he fed them. He had compassion on people, so he healed them. He had compassion on people, so he taught them. It's feeling and doing. And then this shows up in the life of Paul in some noticeable ways that I think are directly tied to his uh, hard-to-believe level of joy. So let's look in Philippians chapter 1. And as we read this, uh, just keep in mind, this letter was written to a, a real group of people, followers of Jesus, in a city called Philippi. It was a pretty big city. And if you, uh, what's helpful to do is read the book of Acts. If you're going to read Philippians, go back to the book of Acts and read what Paul did in Philippi, and then make some connections to that city and this letter, okay? It helps those people become real. In Philippi, uh, just as a refresher, in the book of Acts, he goes into this city, uh, he preaches the gospel, and then they heal this girl who was possessed by a demon. 
and, and they heal her in the name of Jesus. And they get in a lot of trouble for that. Uh, he and his friend Silas get uh, beaten and thrown in jail for healing this girl. Like, what kind of society does that? Um, and so they're in jail, and Paul and Silas, what do they do in jail? They sing. They sing, like, isn't that what you do in jail? You sing praises to God? Yeah, so that's what they do. They sing praises to God. An earthquake comes, sets them free, and the jailer comes to them, and, and afraid for his life, and he says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, Hey, Jesus, believe in Jesus. Put your trust in Jesus. He's, he's where it's at. So the jailer and his whole family go all in with Jesus and get baptized that night. I imagine, because I think it's probably true that when this letter was read in the church in Philippi, that jailer and his family were sitting there listening. Like, so that helps me make a connection. So imagine the Philippian jailer listening to Paul write this. Here's what he says. In chapter one, verses uh, three through eight. I thank my God every time I remember you. You remember that time you put me in jail? Yeah, I I thank God for you. (laughs) In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. And whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. So we see here, Paul feels something for these people. I mean, he spent some time ministering there, starting a church there, and he misses them. You see, you see that in verse eight. He, I long for you. I miss you guys. You also see that he's proud of them. He says, you guys are doing a great job, by the way, of living out the gospel. I'm so proud of you. And I have you in my heart. And you see that he's feeling something for them. But he's also doing something for them. Uh, First of all, he's writing them a letter. Remember, Paul's in jail right now. He doesn't have to be thinking about anybody else. He doesn't have to be writing people letters. He should be, people should be writing him letters, right? People should be sending him encouraging notes and and some, you know, Starbucks gift cards. And like, they should be encouraging him. But Paul is writing letters to other people to encourage them. And he also, he prayed for them. And then he told them that he prayed for them. Guys, this is really important. Uh, Just a a little side note here, because sometimes we do this the other way around. We say, I'm gonna pray for you. And then a percentage of the time we do, right? What percentage is it for you? Maybe, maybe you're really good. It's like 90% of the time when you say, I'll pray for you, you actually do it. For some people, it's like 50% or 30%. So we know that about ourselves. So when somebody else says, I'll pray for you, we go, that's a really nice sentiment. There's about a 30% chance you're actually gonna do it. I just know. So what's better is to pray first and then tell them that you prayed for them. People do that for me sometimes, and it is so encouraging when somebody says, hey, I prayed for you this morning. I'm like, you, you thought about me this morning? Like, that's pretty awesome, I hope, and I hope it was in a good way, right? Uh, I love for people to tell me that. So he prays for them first, then he tells them that he prays for them. So he is, he is demonstrating compassion. He's feeling something, and he's doing something. And just in case you think that he just had this special bond with the church in Philippi and like they were really close to him and he didn't really feel this way about uh, the other people uh, that he wrote letters to. You can see this in his other letters. I just wanna show you another example in First Thessalonians. So the church in Thessalonica, here's what he writes to them. This is so like intimate, it's almost awkward. Here's, here's how he says it. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. That's not an awkward uh, picture in your mind. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. 
And then verses 11 and 12, for you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. So Paul pictures himself as a, a mother with an infant, how infants need nurturing and, and affection and closeness. And then as a father with his older children who need instruction and guidance and encouragement. And that's how he thinks of his relationship with these people. He's a very compassionate person. And I believe that his compassion is tied to joy. Here's why I believe that. Philippians chapter four, if you go to, towards the end of this letter, uh, here's, here's what he says in verses 10 and 14. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. I rejoiced greatly that you showed compassion to me. So while he's in jail, they sent him a little gift, uh, something to help him uh, eat and, and survive while he was there. And he rejoices at this in verse 14. It says, yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. So the Philippians, the disciples in Philippi, have compassion for Paul. They see his suffering because he's in prison. Remember, compassion is a response to another person's suffering that involves feeling and doing. So they see his suffering and they feel something for him and they respond to it by doing something for Paul. And that brings him joy. So this is kind of a weird little cycle we got going here. When Paul shows compassion to other people, it brings him joy. And when other people show compassion to him, it brings him joy. So there's like this joy, compassion, like trade-off thing that's just a cycle that's happening between Paul and these people all the time. And you start to get a picture of why Paul was able to maintain these levels of joy in his life in spite of all that he went through. Uh, so what does this look like for us? Uh, how do we become people who raise our level of joy through compassion and outflow, right? First of all, I think we have to be aware of the Dead Sea habits. Remember I talked about there are some habits that we can do that actually will kill joy. It'll just stifle everything. It'll prevent everything from being outflow because it makes us the center, right? Everything flows to us. So the first one I want to talk about this week is comparison. I think compassion and comparison are incompatible. Compassion and comparison are incompatible. Um, just, you can't do both at the same time because comparison is about you. You're looking at the people around you and you're making value judgments or you're interpreting you know, their financial status or their success or um, you know, their relationships or their health and you're comparing that to your financial status or your relationships or your health and you're either feeling better about yourself because of them or you're feeling worse about yourself because of them, Right? Isn't that what we do? This is a human thing. We, we do it all the time, and it absolutely kills joy. It's hard to be joyful when you're comparing yourself to other people. This works two ways. So it works when we see people who we think are lower than us in some way. Now, we wouldn't say this out loud. That sounds really harsh, but this is what's happening in our hearts and minds. Let's be honest. We kind of look at their financial situation, and we go, you know, they're, they're really not very good at this finance thing. I, you know, I'm much better. I've obviously worked harder. I'm obviously smarter at this stuff. Or we look at people, and we look at their relationships, and we go, their relationships are just a disaster. I mean, I mean, like, I, I, I'm, I'm so much better at relationships than them. And we start to think about how good we are, and, and it fills us with pride. And pride is a joy killer because it makes everything about us. And we have to face the, the mirror sometimes and recognize that we're not as great as we would like to think that we are. 
and it just kills our joy. And it works the other way too. Comparison works the other way. We see people who are better than us. We look at them, we go, man, they're so successful and they, 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 they take you know, nice vacations and they have nice things and oh, they're, they're, their relationships, I mean, their marriage just looks so solid and like, they just seem so healthy. Man, I wish I was, I wish I had that. I wish I was there. I wish I could get there. What's wrong with me? And that, that form of comparison leads to insecurity where we think, oh, there's some, there must be something wrong with me. I'm not good enough. I'm smart enough. I'm not, I'm not put together right. Um, here's the truth. Here's what Anne Lamont says about this. She says uh, that it's, it's futile to compare our insides to someone else's outsides, right? We can't see inside other people. We can only see outside, but we see inside ourselves. And so we know what's going on in here and we see what's going on out there and we compare our insides to other people's outsides and that just kills your joy because it makes you feel insecure. The truth is, Everyone else is just as insecure and prideful and broken and messed up and fearful and anxious and lonely as you are. That is true. I mean, no, no one out there has it all together. Despite what you see on Facebook, no one out there has it all together. So we got to stop comparing our insides to other people's outsides. Stop comparing um, our situation to other people's situation because it, it kills our joy. And it's impossible to be compassionate when we're focused on ourselves. Compassion is a response to the suffering of another person, right? But when we compare, we often make ourselves the victims or the heroes, make ourselves the center of the story, and we can't have compassion on other people. So I just want to challenge you to keep an eye on comparison in your own heart and maybe share this with somebody close to you and say, help me out. Uh, So I'm, I'm not comparing myself to other people's situations determining my value like that, and, and just monitor that and, and make some improvement in that area this week. Um, now let's look at uh, compassion. Uh, how do we live out uh, compassion like Paul did in a way that brings us joy? So I just want to talk about compassion in two, uh, two ways, compassion up close and compassion from a distance, and see how Paul did it and see how we can do it. Compassion up close, when Paul was with people, when he was with the people in Philippi, when he was present with them, he felt things for them, uh, and he did things for them. So Paul would acknowledge that, that other people are suffering. And in, in Paul's mind, the greatest suffering is spiritual suffering. The greatest suffering is separation from God. And so his solution to that is get connected to God through Jesus. And so in his compassion, he felt something for people who are far from God. So he shared the gospel with them. He also did other things on a more uh, practical, uh, temporal level. Like he, when he would go to a town, instead of asking them to support him financially, he would work. He would work another job. So he would preach and, and teach and minister, and then he would work another job to provide for his own needs so he wouldn't be a burden on uh, the people in the community. Like he, he felt things and did things up close for these people because he cared about them, he loved them, and he wanted what was best for them. So what does compassion up close look like in your life? I, I think it has to start with us recognizing that people around us are suffering, that, that everyone has some little bit of brokenness or fear or anxiety or pain, either in their past or in their present, that, that everyone around us needs compassion. And, pay, and when we pay attention, when we look for these opportunities, um, then we have some decisions to make about what we're going to do. 
Um, just a good example of this. A few years ago, my wife uh, spent a year working in the middle school uh, here in, uh, at Hamilton Heights. And she got to know a bunch of kids through the middle school. And she worked with a lot of kids that uh, just struggled academically or for other reasons. And she really uh, spent some time investing in their lives. And then, and then she, she moved on from that job. But she still had a heart for these kids. And so right about that time, this program came into our community called Teach One to Lead One. It's a mentoring program for middle school and high school students. And she jumped all over it because she had a heart for these kids. And now she spends multiple hours a week and every single Thursday in the schools with these kids, sharing uh, just her love for them, but really the love of Jesus through this mentoring program. Um, she felt something for them and she's doing something for them because she, she got close and she paid attention and she saw their need and she developed a heart for them. I mean, that's what we're talking about is this getting close to people, paying attention, like noticing what they need and then stepping into that need with whatever you have. That's compassion up close. But what about compassion from a distance? How did Paul do that? So when Paul writes this letter to the church in Philippi, he is away from them, from a distance, in jail. And like I said before, I mean, he's got enough on his plate, right? When you were in jail in the ancient world, they, they didn't put you up like in a, in a room with three square meals a day and a bed and clothes to wear. They didn't do that. They, they locked you away. And if you were going to eat or have clothes to wear, it was only going to be because people who loved you outside of prison made sure that you ate and had clothes to wear. And so Paul's got enough to think about, right? He's, he's figuring out how to survive but he's still thinking about these people. I mean, most of his letters were written from prison. While he's in jail, dealing with his own issues, he's thinking about other people and how he can be an encouragement to them. So he sends them letters, he prays for them. And then for the, for the church in Philippi, he does something else for them. He sends them a person. Paul can't be with them because he's in jail, so he sends someone else to be with them on his behalf. So uh, there's this uh, person named Epaphroditus who shows up in the letter uh, to the Philippians. And Epaphroditus is from Philippi. When the church in Philippi wanted to support Paul and send him some money and clothes so that he could eat and have clothes to wear in prison, they sent Epaphroditus with this gift. And he shows up and he takes care of Paul and he's encouraging him and he's there to support him every day. He gets really sick at one point, almost dies. Um, but he got better. And uh, so what Paul does when he sends this letter is he's saying, I'm, I'm sending Epaphroditus back to you. Man, this guy, he's, he's been such an encouragement to me and it's been awesome having, having him here. I want you to have him for a while. I want you to get to experience his leadership and his encouragement and his presence. So I'm sending Epaphroditus back to you. So he, said, he sends this guy back with the, with the letter uh, that, that he sent uh, as a gift to them because he can't be with them in person. So he he sends a proxy. He's like, I want, he's going to represent my love for you, and he's coming back to you. And it's just a beautiful uh, gift that Paul gives to these people from a distance. So what can you do from a distance? Uh, here's, here's a question, a couple questions that we don't want to think about, but I think we, we, we must. Where is there suffering happening in the world, and what can I do about it? We don't like to think about that because it's, it's a little overwhelming, isn't it? I mean, you don't have to do a whole lot of research to figure out where there's suffering in the world. The problem is, what can I do about it? I mean, I'm just one person. I can't, I can't solve any of those problems. 
I used to feel this way about recycling. <laughs> uh, I, you know, you think, you think about the environment, you want to protect the environment, you want to do your part. And, but when you look at the problem, if, if you actually do some research on the problem uh, of, of pollution and all that in our world, it's like, oh my goodness, it's huge. And I don't know if me just throwing a, a water bottle in the blue can is really going to help that much. And it feels so overwhelming that we just kind of check out. We're like, man, I can't solve that. But I had a friend who really challenged me to take in recycling seriously uh, just, just to do my part. And so I've been doing that for the last few years. And I, I try really hard uh, to recycle everything that's recyclable, not because I think I can solve the problem, but because I don't want to do nothing. I don't want to contribute to the problem by doing nothing. I don't want to do nothing. I can do something. I just can't do everything. What can I do? And when I, I think when we look at the problems in the world, we need to take that mindset. I can't, I can't do everything, but I, I don't have to do nothing, right? I can do something, right? So I just want to open your eyes to a couple of places in the world where there's, there's some serious problems, and I, want to, I just want to throw these out and see if it causes you to feel anything and, and to want to do anything for these people. So first, first off, let's, let's talk about Haiti. Uh, we know Haiti is um, just a destroyed country, right? It's, it's an awful place um, economically, and if you, have, if you have health or medical issues, and um, like just spiritually, it's very dark, and there's so much corruption and violence. I mean, it's just, it's just a place that's just been beat up. And I don't know about you, but do, do you get desensitized sometimes? And, and you hear like, you know, well, there's another earthquake in Haiti. There's another hurricane hitting Haiti. There's, there's another uh, epidemic in Haiti. And you're like, well, you know, what do we do? Well, this stinks for them, but what do we do? Well, for us, Cicero Christian Church, we have people who live there and minister there that we know. Jessica and Lubens, Eugene, they've stood on this stage and you've prayed for them and you've sent money to them. What can we do? Well, we can, we can follow Paul's example. We can, we can pray for them, and then we can let them know that we prayed for them. Guys, that's so encouraging when you do that. Well, how do you do that? Well, um, we could do it the way Paul did it. I mean, if, if letter writing works 2,000 years ago, I think it still works today. You could write a letter, send it through our missions team, and they would make sure that uh, our missionaries get that letter. But there's also technology has come a long way in 2,000 years. So you can find Jessica on Facebook and you can send her an email. Our Facebook is not email. Those are two different things. I'm old. Stop. I, you can send her a, probably a message on Facebook of some kind or some sort of social media. You could communicate with her in real time like, and say, hey, I've prayed for you today. What can I pray for you about tomorrow? How can I encourage you? You can send money. You can sponsor a child through their child sponsorship. There's, there are things that we can do. You can't do everything. You can't solve the problems in Haiti. But you can do something, right? Do you feel something for those people? And does that feeling make you want to do something? That's compassion. Uh, let me talk to you about the Democratic Republic of the Congo. You guys been there? No, me neither. Uh, it's a huge country in the center of Africa, uh, million, 100 million people plus, and they've just been through it uh, in the last four years. Before COVID, they, they had Ebola outbreak, um, cholera, the measles, and they're dealing with all of these epidemics in their country without a good infrastructure for medical support. And then they have like... Um, 
militia violence, like these different factions in the country are fighting each other all the time and trying to take control uh, through violence and oppression. And so imagine you're trying to send medicine to curb the Ebola outbreak in this one part of the country and your medicine truck gets hijacked by rebels of some kind and they steal it so they can sell it to another country and it never gets where it was going. This is what they've been living with. There are millions of Christians in the Democratic Republic of the Congo uh, and they're struggling there because of religious persecution that's still present in that part of the world. Do you feel something for those people? Does it make you want to do something for those people? If so, you can pray for them. You can let them know that you're praying for them. You can find organizations that are working in that country to try to make things better, to try to provide resources, make medical care available, spread the gospel, and you can partner with those organizations or support those people uh, through encouragement and prayer. Uh, let's talk about Afghanistan. We know that with the Taliban takeover, uh, there's, there's, there's a lot of just tension and, and difficult uh, situation for those folks. And as Americans, we often think about how this affects us and how it might affect Americans there. But truly, the greatest danger to, uh, with the Taliban takeover is not to Americans, it's to people who live in Afghanistan. The, the Christians who live there and particularly uh, educated women are just uh, under uh, severe test right now. Do you feel something for them? Does it make you want to do something? Could you pray for them? Could you send support? Could you find an organization that's working in that country to care for the people who live there? What can you do? Just a little bit of compassion. I, I, we could go on. There's a lot we could talk about. Um, Central America. So here's, here's something that, that we kind of know because the way our news uh, services work, we know there's an immigrant problem at the border, right? So um, as followers of Jesus, we should care about that. We should care about immigrants. We should care about refugees and people seeking asylum. But what if we also tracked back from the border to figure out what are these people running from? In uh, Guatemala, Ecuador, and El Salvador, uh, there, there are uh, health crisis and nutrition crisis happening. 45% of children in those three countries are either malnourished or undernourished. Children. Guys, think about your children and your grandchildren not having enough food to eat. What would you do to try to get enough food for your family to eat? But the governments in those countries are broken and there's corruption and it's a mess and there's gang violence. Do you feel something? Can you do something? Can you pray? Can you find organizations to partner with that are providing relief and treating this problem at the source? I know it feels overwhelming. And you can't do everything. You can't care about all the people. You can't solve all the problems. We, you probably can't solve any of the problems. But guys, do you know what our God can do? absolutely anything. And he cares. He cares about the people in Afghanistan every bit as much as he cares about people in America or Guatemala or the DRC or Haiti or Canada. God loves all people everywhere. And he invites us to demonstrate compassion to them. So I know it's overwhelming, but let me share this, just uh, some words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 10. He says, if anyone gives even a cup of cold water 
to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. Just a cup of cold water. Jesus is not calling everyone to solve all the problems. He's saying, what do you have? And what can you do with what you have? Do you care about people? Do you feel something for those who are suffering? And can you do something? So, uh, did you bring a cup today? Some of you did bring a cup. You got some coffee in it. You can hold your cup up. If you didn't bring a cup, uh, do this. Make a cup. Everybody, join me here. Do this. Audience participation time. Thank you, Sage. Uh, make your cup and look in your cup. What do you have? Think about your, your resources. Your resources are your time. Most of you are like, don't have much of that. Well, you make your choices. You have what you have. What, what do you have when it comes to treasure, financial resources, material stuff? What's in your cup? You're like, eh, not much. <laughs> what do you have when it comes to talent and your, your just ability to do things that maybe not everybody can do? What's in your cup? And who do you care about? How can you take what's in your cup and do something for somebody that you care about? Let's use our imaginations for a minute. So you, you, you know what's in your cup. Close your eyes for a minute. Everybody close your eyes. Who's somebody up close, somebody that you see regularly, interact with, you know their name, that's suffering. They've got some kind of pain or brokenness or fear or anxiety or heartbreak. Is there anything in your cup that you can offer? Word of encouragement, prayer, a card, some face-to-face time, financial support? What can you offer? Think about people who are far away. Maybe it's one of the countries that we talked about, Haiti, Afghanistan, Republic of the Congo, Central America, or somewhere else that just has your heart. Where, where is suffering happening far away from you? And what's in your cup? What can you offer? Do you feel something? What can you do? Father, as we take a look at what you've given us, just a little bit, the little cup of cold water that we have, the time, talent, treasure that's in our cup, I just pray, along with my brothers and sisters here, that you would cause us to feel something and do something on behalf of people who are suffering in your name and for your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Friends, I, I wanna remind you of uh, where we started. We kind of ended talking about compassion and what you can do for others, but we started talking about joy. And uh, everyone would love to increase their level and sustainability when it comes to joy. What if, what if the way to increase your joy is not about more coming in, but it's about something going out? What if it's about an outflow more than an inflow for you? And maybe showing compassion for others will increase your joy. I just wanna leave you with that challenge. We're gonna celebrate a couple baptisms and I hope this brings you joy to see God at work in people's lives. Uh, These two young men that are giving their lives to Christ today, I hope it brings you joy to see what God's doing in their hearts. So we're gonna get ready and celebrate that uh, just now.